You're listening to a podcast of Family Church in West Monroe, Louisiana. Wherever or however you're listening, our hope is that this message would be challenging and inspiring for you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's head to the message. In 1776, one of the most important documents that's ever been written in the history of the world, to be honest, uh, was beginning to be penned. And it was in 1776 that this Declaration of Independence would totally change the outlook for 13 British colonies who were declaring that independence. And the thing about it is, is that in the second paragraph of this document, there is a particular statement. And it's in this statement that really has defined a huge part of American culture even today. And I want to read that statement to you. Look at the screen. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as I read that statement, the truth is, is that that very bottom line is what uh, attracts me, is the, the pursuit of happiness And I'm sure when this was written in 1776, it was meaning something so much different than what it means today. You know, 200 years is a lot to to change uh, the meaning of something. But as I think about it, the truth is the pursuit of happiness is what we all want, right? The pursuit of happiness is what we would all desire. We want to be happy. And the pursuit of it, to chase after it, I mean, that's, that's huge. But when you really think about that statement, it's really hard for everybody in this room to be happy about the same thing. Let me give you an example, because the truth is, is that what your happiness is and what my happiness is may be the same, but they actually may be conflicting. One certain illustration that may come to mind It's simply for those of you who know me, know my family is from Georgia. I may root for the Atlanta Falcons from time in and time out. It has not worked so well for me this year if you're a football fan. (laughs) One in seven does not make a good football team. But many of you in here, as I've already felt the nasty looks, just I, as soon as I said Atlanta Falcons, there was a shift in the atmosphere, Pastor O'Neill. It was just, many of you in here are Saints fans. You're not good Saints fans. No, it's okay. I'm just kidding. But the truth is you are. Next week, next week, the Atlanta Falcons play the New Orleans Saints. The pursuit of happiness for me is to get a second win in the season. (laughs) We're not going to the Super Bowl. All we have is that we may beat the Saints. (laughs) And, of course, for you guys, the pursuit of happiness is we don't want to get tripped up by the Dirty Birds. No, we've got a Super Bowl to win. We've been kicked out of two of them. Third time's a charm. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's a, that better not be the only clap I get is for New Orleans Saints football this morning. Just find some point and be like, oh, I better clap now so I'm spiritual. <laughs> but no, but the pursuit of happiness is different. It can be different for you. It's different for me. And so then that leads us to this question is that, As disciples of Jesus Christ, what does the pursuit of happiness look like through him? Does it change? Does it alter? Obviously, if we are all calling ourselves disciples in here today, then there must be a unified pursuit that could equal happiness. At least that's what we would think. 
question then goes, does God want us to be happy? Does he care about our happiness? You know, it's really interesting because we're going to look in Scripture today and we're we're going to look at several different aspects of what is happiness and and what really isn't happiness and, and what we think gives us happiness and what really will never give us happiness. Now, I don't know if any of you, if you've had a middle schooler in the last five to seven years, whether you've had a current middle school or whatever, especially if they are a boy, you have heard this game called Minecraft, okay? This game called Minecraft, as you can see, if you've never heard of this game or never seen this game before, uh, it's actually a very educational game. It's a building game, a thought-provoking game. Uh, it, it's, a, it's really a creative, very creative game. It doesn't look much. It's very it's pixelized. I mean, it looks just like that. Like, that's what it is. It's little blocks that you build and all of this. And I've never played it, but here's what I know. It is a very popular game. And back when it was being built, it was beginning to see its popularity. Microsoft decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and buy this game so that we can have it and put it in our repertoire. And what they ended up paying for this game, listen to this video game, $2.5 billion. That's how popular this game was and continues to be. $2.5 billion. Now, the truth is, is that the leader of who created this game, his name was Marcus Pearson, and he received the majority of that $2.5 million. I said million, billion dollars. I mean, just mind-blowing. His life has changed forever. You can imagine he, he retired immediately. He was done working. He ended up buying a $70 million house with a wall made of candy. Because let's be honest, if you buy a $70 million house, it better have at least a wall of candy. He traveled the world. He bought exotic cars. There was not a door that Marcus could not get into. Now, Marcus had a nickname. His nickname was Notch. And sometime while he was in Ibiza, He was at a party. He pulls out his phone, and he gets on Twitter. And his Twitter handle is Notch. And I want you to see some of the tweets that he tweeted out. You can actually go online today, look, you can see all of these. Let's look at this first one. It says, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more isolated. Next one. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Next one. Since we sold the company, the biggest effort went into making sure the employees got taken care of. But they all hate me now. And then this final one. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. 
This is a man that literally could have had anything that he ever wanted. And truthfully, I doubt any of us will ever amount to $2.5 billion. But I do know that if we were to take time today and were to talk to each and every single one of you, you would be able to tell me of a story where you have chased something, where if you wanted to achieve something, and it just didn't pan out the way you thought it would once you achieved it. It maybe didn't give you the satisfaction you thought that it would give, or at least that satisfaction did not last very long. And the truth is, is that this type of scenario is not new to our society. It was not new in 19, or excuse me, in 1776, and it wasn't new for a very long time. Actually, if we go back to a thousand years before the Bible, excuse me, before Jesus was even born, we find a man named Solomon. And Solomon was so wealthy, and Solomon had so many resources that he would have made Notch look like a broke college student. No offense to our college students in here today. Let me explain to you. If you were to take Solomon's wealth, put it in today's currency, Solomon's annual income would have been $760 million. This is the best part. If you take his net worth, it would equal $2.1 trillion. We can't even fathom that much. I don't know if you can even burn money that fast. I'd really love the opportunity to try. (laughs) There was not a price tag that Solomon ever had to look at in his entire life. And and if you've ever read about Solomon, you know that he was powerful. He was charismatic. He was creative and he was wise. But at the very end of his life, he was very honest. He was transparent. He was broken, remorseful, and to be honest, he even became repentant. Because as an old man, Solomon took his entire life and he put it under review. And what's interesting here is he just becomes so incredibly vulnerable. He admits his mistakes, his meanderings, his misguided attempts at happiness. And he basically says, listen, I've had everything several times over, and happiness kept eluding me. Now Solomon, he took all these thoughts and he put them into this type of journal, and and we call that journal the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is old man Solomon talking about his life and what he's looked at, because when you look at young man Solomon, you realize he was a man who loved God. He asked for wisdom over things. He was a one-woman man. But as what happens in so many instances, at some point there was a little derailment and it just kept getting worse and worse. And the truth is, is that if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that Solomon is called the wisest man who ever lived. But it's interesting that even though he had all that wisdom, he didn't always have the discipline to use that wisdom in the choices that were in his life. And so interesting me to see that. And so we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes today, and we're going to start in the third chapter. But before we get there, you look at chapters 1 and 2, Solomon kind of lays out this experiment for us of what he is going to do. And he's in this journey, and he's trying to find meaning and fulfillment. And he starts off and he says, listen, I'm going to find it in knowledge. I'm going to learn whatever I can learn. He realized happiness wasn't found there. So he decided to abandon that track and he decided to have a really good time and pursue it in pleasure. 
but he didn't find it there either. So he decided to just achieve all that he could. He became this workaholic. He was advancing his career, but he says all of that was like chasing the wind. And many of us, again, we could talk about situations in our life where we thought something would bring us fulfillment and we go to chase after it and it really is like the wind. You know, Solomon, he uses this word almost 40 times in this book and it's called, it's the word meaningless. Meaningless. And if you were to take that word and you look at it in its original language, it's the word havel. And havel simply means empty, vanity. And he goes, it's just meaningless. But then we get to chapters 3 and chapters 4. And Solomon, what he's going to do is he's actually going to address a couple of things that threaten our happiness. And those are the things that I want us to look at today. We're going to look at two different aspects of the things that threaten our happiness. Because the truth is, is that you may be sitting here and you may be going, you know what? Maybe I've got everything that I think I should have. I've got a, a great house, a great job, a great car, a great family. Everything seems to be going right, but you still wake up in the morning and you go, you know what, I don't, am I really happy? Am I, am I really happy? So what threatens happiness? The very first one is this. It says, I am unhappy when I can't enjoy my current season of life. I am, I am unhappy when I can't enjoy my current season of life. And we're going to start reading verse 1 of chapter 3. This is one of the most popular parts of this book. And it says this. It says, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. <laughs> A time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, as I read that, the truth is, is these are all very two extremes, two ends of a path. He says, we're all born and we're all going to inevitably die. We all know what it's like to cry. We all know what it's like to laugh. We all have grieved. We all can dance, even though if it's not very good. We all have relationships that begins, and sometimes we know in those relationships we have to say goodbye. We acquire things one day to only have to let them go the next, and he's covering all of this life. And I don't know if you're like me when I've read this passage of Scripture several times in my life. There are times I just want to pick out the good stuff. Can I just have this? Can I just have the time to love? Can I just have the time for peace? That would make life so much simpler, wouldn't it? 
But the truth is, is that it's not a menu. And he even calls it this in the very beginning of verse 1. He says it's like seasons. And we know life is like seasons, just as nature has seasons, life has seasons. And, and we know that this cool weather that we're enjoying this morning, we would not appreciate it the same if we didn't have the 360 days a year of 100-degree weather here in Louisiana. We wouldn't appreciate it as much. Could you imagine that, not appreciating cool weather? I know this is going to sound crazy. I have a friend in California, and he used to live over in that area, and he used to say, man, you wake up every single day, 75 degrees, beautiful. There's never any seasons. He says it's 75 every single day, rarely rains. He says, you know what happens? He says, you get up and you see it every single day, and you end up getting tired of it. Some of you are like, uh, that guy's stupid. <laughs> but he said, I never even thought about it until he moved to the south. And he goes, I really appreciate that 75 degrees now. He says, but I appreciate just having seasons. <clears throat> now, it's really easy to say that when you're in 75 degree weather and everything seems great. It's a lot harder to say that when you're in a tough season. But the truth is, and we know this, is that what makes laughter so great is when there have been times that we've grieved. And it's more than that. It's more than just that simple statement. As much as I hate to admit it, when I, when I look back at my past, it really hasn't been the wonderful moments or the great moments that have caused me to grow and mature the most. It's been the moments of pain. It's been the moments of trial and difficulty. I mean, even from when I was a kid until now, when I was, when I was cut from a ball team, when I was denied an opportunity, when I was confronted in love, when I was rejected by a friend, or when I was told I didn't have what it takes. And those are hurtful moments. But it is in those moments that allow us an opportunity of whether we're going to mature in those moments or whether we wallow in those moments. And here's what I believe. People who are never stretched, who are never hurt, who never mourn, can easily become self-centered, entitled, immature, and listen to this, deeply dissatisfied with life. And there's one thing I know about God is I don't believe God put me on this earth to be deeply dissatisfied with life, not the life that he intended for me to have and for you to have. And Solomon continues in Ecclesiastes at verse 9. He says, what do people really get for all of their hard work? I've seen the burden God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Now, this statement right here, planted eternity in the human heart, is a beautiful statement. It's something that you feel like as you're scrolling through Instagram, somebody would have posted and be like, God has placed eternity in the human heart. You double tap and you'd move along. What in the world does that mean? And to be honest, it, it creates a, a crux for this entire passage that's right here. Because when he puts that eternity in our hearts, what that really means is that we know that there's 
intrinsically something wrong with this world. We know that there's something wrong with us. And there's this space, and we keep trying to fill it with stuff and things, but those things aren't eternal. And so it really never fills that void, but we keep going after more and more and more. And it's put there because it has to be placed with something that's eternal. And until we put something eternal in there, we're going to continually wake up and go, what's wrong What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my life? And the truth is, is that God is sovereign. His plan is perfect. He's infinite and we're finite. And just as the scripture says, is that people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Oh, how I wish there were days where the Lord would just lay out the plan Or he would just say, you're going to go here. This is going to get a little bumpy. But it's going to all even out right here. And you're not even going to worry about the bumpy part because you're going to be where you're supposed to be. I mean, it's, when I think about that, I don't know, this wasn't in my notes, but it just makes me think about it. When we were coming in for our very first time crossing right before we got to the Mississippi Bridge, and coming into Louisiana, I don't know why Mississippi doesn't fix those roads right before the bridge. I have no idea. I'm sure they're fine people, very intelligent. They need to fix these roads. And I remember I'm in a U-Haul truck and Amelia's in our vehicle. And as I'm going over this U-Haul truck, I'm like, what is going on? I mean, we're just bumping. I'm thinking everything's falling out. I mean, they're just terrible roads. You go over the bridge and we have our own road issues in Louisiana. But right there. It just smooths out to this beautiful landscape. You're like, Lord, have I entered heaven? What has happened? It's so different. The contrast is so much. But I know anytime we have to go back to Georgia, I'm going to have to go over those stupid bumps, those holes in the ground. But you know what? When I get to my destination, I'm really not going to care about those bumps so much. But you know what ends up happening is that we end up Spending so much time talking about those stupid bumps. And we spend so much time of our life settling right there. And we'll even stop, pull over to the side of the road, call somebody else and be like, have you seen these stupid bumps? They are making my life. We're not even worried about continuing our journey. We're okay just stopping and complaining about it over and over and over again. And you know what that complaining does to those bumps? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't change anything about your life. It just makes you more mad. And it puts you where, again, you're trying to fill yourself because you think, well, if I complain about it, surely something will happen. How's that work for you lately? (laughs) That's not what happens. And I don't know how many of you are country music fans, but there's this guy who was kind of famous. His name was Johnny Cash. And... And for those of you who don't know Pastor Stravato, he is our Johnny Cash expert here at Family Church. And so when I knew I was going to talk about this song, I went and talked to him about it. He gave me all the, the, everything I needed to know about Johnny Cash. And uh, this song is called A Boy Named Sue. 
Now, this song was the most financially successful song for Johnny Cash. You wouldn't think it would be. you think it would be Walk the Line or one of his other ones. This one was actually the most financially successful because it was number one in the country charts and number two in the pop charts at the exact same time. Now, I've never heard a pop song much like this one, but here we go. But I, I want to read the lyrics to this song to you, and they're a little long, so just stand with me. But if you've never heard this song before, you're in for a treat. Here we go. Well, my daddy left home when I was three. He didn't leave much to ma and me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought this was quite a joke, that it got a lot of laughs from a lot of folk. It seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle, and I'd get red. Some guy'd laugh, and I'd bust his head. I tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Well, I grew up quick, and I grew up mean. My fists got hard, and my wits got king. Roamed from town to town to hide my shame. But I made a vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky-tonks and bars and kill that man who gave me that awful name. Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July, and I'd just sit down and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud, there at a table dealing stud sat the dirty, mangy dog that named me Sue. Well, I knew that snake was my old sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother'd had. I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old, and I looked at him, and my blood ran cold. And I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes, and he went down. But to my surprise, he come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear. But I busted a chair rod across his teeth, and we crashed through the wall and into the street, kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer. These guys need counseling. <laughs> I tell you, I fought tougher, man, but I really can't remember when. He kicked like a mule and he bit like a crocodile. And I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun and I pulled mine first. And he stood there looking at me and I saw him smile. So he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's going to make it, he's got to be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's the name that helped make you strong. Yeah, he said, now you just fought one heck of a fight, and I know you hate me, and you got the right to kill me now. I wouldn't blame you if you do. But you ought to thank me before I die for the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye, because I'm the guy that named you Sue. Now listen to this. I got all choked up, and I threw down my gun, called him my paw, and he called me his son, and I came away with a different point of view. Let's establish something. This is an absolutely silly and ridiculous song. <laughs> it just is. But you know the truth of it is as well? Is that there's a profound truth in it. Is that when I look back at the most painful, difficult moments in my life, those are the moments that have produced most growth in me. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't wish bad, hard, or painful moments on anybody. And it's not even to say that I celebrate them or I look forward to them. But it's ju- I just know when I look back at my life, my spiritual growth and my emotional growth are almost linked to something difficult. And I don't know how you are. I know how I am. I hate to fail. And I know that sounds like a simple statement, but my personality type struggles with failure. And so there are times that I will avoid something if it means I might fail. But the truth is, is that failure can be one of the greatest gifts that we could ever have. Now, I also want to make something clear here. I'm not talking about open sin. I'm not talking about that just go, sin, do whatever you want, then you come back to God, and that is not what I am referring to here. There's nowhere in Scripture that that is okay. But just as Pastor Terry said this morning to all of the parents, we're not perfect people. We're going to mess up, and it is in our failure that we can find this growth. The truth is, is that it's been in the valleys of my marriage to Amelia that have deepened my affections for her, not just the good times. It's been the financial strains that have motivated me to be a better steward of the resources that God has temporarily entrusted me with. It's been the interpersonal conflict with people that I truly love that have actually equipped me with greater empathy toward others to develop my people skills, not just the people I have natural chemistry with. And then Solomon goes in verse 12, and this is what he says. So I concluded that there is nothing better to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. And I know that whatever God does is final. It's what I said to you earlier is that there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of your labor. There's nothing wrong with that at all, and you should. But we can get to a place where we start focusing so much on the bad parts of our life that it causes us to not enjoy the season of our life. And it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean you just put it on the back burner and ignore that it's there. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we can find that we can do exactly what Scripture says here and accept that they're a gift from God. And we're not making those gifts the ultimate. We're just worshiping the, the giver of those gifts. So he talks about not enjoying the current season of your life. And then this is what the second thing that he says, we move to chapter four. He says, I am unhappy. I can be unhappy when I am envying someone else's circumstances. Look at what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning at verse four. It says, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless. And again, there's that word again, like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful of quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. If you haven't gotten it yet, Solomon's not a fan of chasing the wind. You know, the crazy thing about it is, is that he wrote this 3,000 years ago, and it still describes our society to a T. It's... It's a difficult aspect because when we're not happy with our life and we're not enjoying the current season in our life, well, then we just go, well, I'm going to compare it to other people and we make it worse. Or we act as if we're better off than we actually are so that people will think that we're happy. 
And that's not what Jesus wants us to do either. And it's this crazy scenario that we allow to happen over and over in our lives. I want to read this quote from a man named Shia LaBeouf. If you don't know who he is, he's an actor. He was made famous for the Transformers movies that he did several years ago. And he said this particular statement. Sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life. I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I have got money. I'm famous, but it could all change, man. It could all go away. You never know. I don't handle fame well. And I thought that was such a strikingly vulnerable statement. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. And if I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. This man has found success in so much that he's done. And he said this statement, but it's a God-sized hole. You know what it is? It's that, that eternity that is placed in the heart. And he's got everything that he could ever desire. But sometimes we just don't think it's enough, especially when we compare it to other people. And what ends up happening is that we can sacrifice, because when we compare to somebody, it makes us really not connect with them very well, and we can sacrifice connection for achievement. And he continues this in verse 7. He says, I observed... Another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is a case of a man who is all alone without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asked himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's all so meaningless and depressing. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. You know, one of the greatest gifts that we have is connection to other people. Now, some personality types see that better than others, and the truth is, is that no matter what your personality type is, it is still true for all of us. And we're all saying that we're striving for happiness and we look for it in our circumstances and we never find it there and we look for it in comparisons and we'll never find it there and we end up in those pursuits and it cuts us off connection with other people. And that's not what God intended for us to do. There's a man named Dr. Henry Cloud. And he's an author and he's a psychologist. He's written a number of books. And Dr. Cloud is a follower of Jesus. And what he does is, is that he takes these biblical principles and he really merges them with psychology and social sciences. And he's written a book called The Law of Happiness. And what it does is, is that it shows what research has said and then he backs it up with biblical Principles And what I love so much is the things that he says in this book. Now, this 
if you've never read this book, I would encourage you to go buy the book, but there actually is a study of this book on Right Now Media, uh, and that's the video service that we used here for small groups at Family Church. Uh, if you aren't connected with that, you can come see me. I'll get you set up in, uh, or point to the person that you need to talk to, but there's a whole video study that goes through this book and actually covers some of the things that I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But one of the quotes that Dr. Cloud says is this in the book. It says, when we are pursuing the things that don't have the power to make us happy, we are ignoring the ones that do. When we are pursuing the things that don't have the power to make us happy, we are ignoring the ones that do. Another way of saying this is that when you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. You cannot be a well of infinite yeses. You have limited finances. You have limited resources. You have limited brain power. You cannot say yes to everything. So when you say yes to something, somewhere else you're saying no. And what Dr. Cloud says here and what Solomon has said is that when you're pursuing things that don't even have the ability, it's not even, they're not even able to make you happy, you're ignoring the things that do. You know what's interesting? Another thing that he says here is that research shows that less than 10% of our circumstances account for true and lasting happiness. Less than 10% of our circumstances. I'm not belittling for those of you who are in the midst of something hard right now. Please don't hear that. I know what you're dealing with is difficult and it's tough. And you may not even know when it's going to end. But it doesn't have to be the thing that, that puts a, a cover over your entire life. Because the truth is, circumstantial happiness is, is good. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It, it's, it can be a gift. When you get the good news, when you get a new phone, when you, when you get the unexpected check in the mail, whatever it may be, receive it as a gift. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's still circumstantial happiness. It has a shelf life. It is not going to sustain. It is not going to fill the eternity that is in your heart. It's not going to take you the distance through life. And I just really love when research that people do and these psychologists who are brilliant men and women, it backs up things that we've had in the Bible forever. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of the coolest things. And, and this is what he said. And this, is, this is a list of things that describe happy people. I want to read this list to you as we close today. Happy people are givers. They're generous. Happy people don't wait for some day. They pursue their goals. They seize the moment, which is the next one. When, when they pursue their goals, they, they don't go, I'm going to get to that eventually. They fully engage they fully engage in what is in front of them. They connect with others. We just talked about that. They connect with others. One of the other things that he said in here was just amazing. Having healthy connections. I need everybody to hear this clearly. Having healthy connections with other people is a greater predictor of future health. Listen to this. Than nutrition and exercise combined. It is a greater predictor of future health. So do you know what that means? Found this in scripture. It is better to eat chocolate cake with friends than a salad alone. First Thessalonians 1-1. One, one. 
You know how people get scripture tattooed like on their wrist or something? I, I don't have a tattoo yet. This may lead me to get one. <laughs> it's better to eat chocolate cake with friends than alone. Salad alone. Connect with others. It matters. Happy people don't feel like they have to compare themselves. Happy people think well. They develop good thought patterns in their life. Everything doesn't just go to a negative immediately. They're grateful people, and they express their gratefulness. Happy people are quick to forgive. Listen to this. Happy people follow their calling. It's something bigger than yourself. And happy people, they have faith. Now, the truth is, and you've seen it in our society today, this, this kind of mantra of, you know, do what makes you happy. But, and why don't we? Why aren't we happy? Here's what I believe. is happiness cannot be found by pursuing happiness. Because whatever you believe this is going to be, whatever you believe this is, it will not fill you. You can't just get up and go, I'm going to pursue happiness. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy, and that's going to fill me. It will not work. So don't chase after whatever you think is going to make you happy. In reading what Solomon said today, I think that this next statement truly leads to happiness. Pursue God, meaningfully connect with others, and happiness will find you. Pursue God. Pastor Terry talked about it today. It is one of the mantras of where we are at Family Church. Pursue God. Chase after Him. Meaningfully connect with people. Stop making excuses. You are not meant to do this alone. You may be sitting here and go, well, I've got my wife, I've got my husband. Connect with another wife and husband. It's not enough. Now, you may be sitting here going, Zach, this, this sounds a little self-help mumbo-jumbo. I don't believe that's the case because Jesus is the one who said it. Look in Mark chapter 12. It says, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. If you truly want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it will not come from your bank account. It will not come from a social status. It will not come from the things that are in your house. It will not come from just saying that you know people. It will truly come when you pursue God with everything that is inside of you, when you allow it to be the vision as as you live your life and you allow that pursuit to lead you to people who will follow that with you and you can connect with them. You can do life with them. And I promise you, based off of what Scripture says, because it remains true, if you do those things, you will find happiness. 
but it starts with you. It starts with you today. No more excuses. No more reasons why you can't. It takes an evaluation of your life to go, God, what have I been putting in there that's just trying to make me happy? But Lord, it's really not going to lead me to true fulfillment. Today, you have the opportunity to make a change. It may be easier for some of you. Some of you may mean difficult decisions. But I'm praying, I'm asking you. And I'm telling you, you won't find anything that will give you the fulfillment that those two things I'm telling you today are. Thanks for listening to the Family Church Podcast. You can stay connected with us at familychurch.org or by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission at Family Church is to pursue God, make disciples, and strengthen families. If you're in the West Monroe area, we would love for you to come join us. You can check out familychurch.org for our location and service times. 